Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In Griefland, lots of groups of people are talked about as invisible or forgotten or overlooked. Children, parents grieving a miscarriage, ex-partners and spouses, and siblings. With children, at least historically, people thought and hoped that they would just forget the person and not be affected by their absence. With parents grieving a miscarriage, sometimes no one even knows about the loss, and when they do, it can turn into a minefield of platitudes. Things like, well, you can always try again. Former partners and spouses are met with disbelief that they're grieving at all, and they have to weather comments like, we've been split up for so long, why is this even affecting you? For siblings of all ages, the death might be visible and their relationship unquestioned, but their grief still often exists in the shadow of their parents, or at least it's treated that way by other people. Jordan Ferber ran into that when his younger brother Russell died when Russell was 21. While Jordan's parents recognized that he needed support just as much as they did, the rest of his sphere started where most people do, with the question, how are your parents? Jordan used those moments as a chance to teach people that while his parents were in deep grief, he was also in pain and deserved the same support and acknowledgement. Jordan's grief is about to turn 20, and over those years, he's found a way to bring two important parts of himself together, the part that grieves for his brother and the part that is a professional comedian. This mixing led to the creation of his podcast, Where's the Grief? On his show, he talks with other comedians about death and grief and loss. Jordan is also a longtime facilitator of a grief support group for other siblings through the Compassionate Friends, which is a nationwide support group network for those grieving the death of a child or a sibling. Just a heads up, listeners, that this episode contains some salty language. So if you're listening with younger children, or if you're just not up for hearing that type of language, you might want to skip this one. Okay, here's my interview with Jordan. Jordan, thanks so much for joining me for Grief Out Loud. It's, I don't know, it's kind of fun. It feels like home talking to someone who is uh, in Brooklyn right now where my family's from. Forget about it over here. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, who's excited to be on Grief Out Loud? I'm already out loud. I might as well bring some of the grief. Oh, hey, oh, <laughs> sorry. Hard to resist that. With an intro like that, it's hard to resist going into this silly voice. <laughs> And listeners, as you can already tell, this might be a little bit different of a grief out loud conversation as Jordan is also a podcast host and a comedian. uh, So it may not be our sort of standard operating procedures for the conversation today. But Jordan, I do always like to just kind of ground us in what brings people to working in this realm or, you know, being invested in the in the realm of grief. And for you, that's the, the death of your brother. And, you know, it's coming up on 20 years. And I was wondering, what's it like for you to hear that that number, 20 years. Uh, it is crazy. It, it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years. It doesn't feel like 20 years all the time. Uh, it feels, 
I don't know, those, those, those first five years or so, it felt like it could have been yesterday, every day. And then as time goes on, it doesn't feel like it was yesterday anymore. And the fact that it's coming up on 20, I mean, it's, uh, I can't believe I've almost lived more of my life without him in it than I have with him here. He was, Russell was 21 when he died. So, it, you know, it, it's not that far removed. And for some reason, I'm not sure why we do this, but I think that, you know, we, we put extra weight on these milestone dates than I think um, is necessary. It's, you know, how, how, we, how we mark time, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's weird to think that the, the 20 year mark will, hurt, will somehow be more painful than the 19 year mark. But that's just how I think we naturally assign uh, the feelings, uh, you know, to time. I, but it is weird to think. Um, I don't know how I'm going to react when I actually hit the 20 year. I'm. I feel supremely lucky that I have way more resources at my available to me right now than I did 15, 20 years ago. So I'm. I'm. I'm optimistic about how I handle it. Yeah, it's an interesting point that as a. I don't know. I don't know if it's just unique to the United States or other countries and communities where we kind of love the multiples of five. You know, every time we do any sort of celebration, like five year, 10 year, 15 year, 20 year, when really, I don't know if our bodies connect as much to those five year increments versus like you said, the 19 years or 17 years. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting. I'm not sure where that where that came from, but it definitely has become a part of the the grief experience of marking those days. And, you know, I know it's been many years since your brother died, but how, how do you talk about him now? What was he like? How do you describe him? Well, my brother was, first of all, I, I, I really enjoy being able to tell stories where my brother is like, you know, the hero, but I also love telling stories where my brother was kind of a dick, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> those are some good stories too. But I, my brother was, my brother lived more in 21 years than most people I know live in a lifetime. He really did a lot with his life. He was the most charming guy I think uh, I'd ever met or anybody ever knew. He, at 13 years old, he had a business card that said the little man with the big mouth. And uh, he had had, he had a growth hormone deficiency. So he had to take shots to grow. So when he was 13, he still looked like he was probably about nine. He was really young looking, but he was really savvy. Talk to people, talk to adults as though they were equals. He was not phased by whatever society uh, deemed to be the cultural differences or the, you know, societal differences between him and other people. He was very open to talking to people like he knew them. And he walked into rooms like he owned it. You know, he, I always say that, you know, he was the type where if you stopped him from wherever he was going, he would question your authority before he would listen to what you were trying to tell him to do. And were you like him growing up? We were, I mean, we were three years apart. I'm so I'm the older brother. And I feel like Russell was, you know, Jordan 2.0. You know, he saw all the things that I did and and improved upon him. The one of the stories I always tell is that, you know, when he was uh five years old, somebody asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, and he said eight. Because that's how old I was. He he was very much look up to me. But then as he got older, as he got a little older, he, he definitely surpassed me in a lot of ways. I always feel like there was a point where I started living in his shadow rather than the other way around. There was, you know, an interesting di- dynamic switch in, in, in a number of ways. I often talk about how, you know, he was annoyingly good at just about everything. 
he was the type of kid that you taught him how to do something. And five minutes later, he was better than you at it and would make sure he let you know <laughs> too. You know, he's definitely pointed out how much better he was at <laughs> than you at it after he just learned. <laughs> so he was not humble in his accomplishments. He was not shy. You know, my, we both come from the same mother. My mother does not have any opinions. She keeps to herself. <laughs> uh, and speaking of your family, how did people in your sphere respond to you and your parents when Russell died? Well, so one of the things when you lose a sibling, it's really hard because a lot of the focus is on the parents. There's very little understanding of what I was going through. I think the sibling, you know, the sibling loss is often the most overlooked of the losses. When, when you, my, Russell died, the number one question I got was, how's your mother? Oh my God, your parents must be devastated. I was very lucky that my parents were hyper aware that my experience was different, but parallel to theirs. And they really were very conscious of it. Very, they really gave me my own space to do things the way that I did them. And um, I was, so I, I never allowed other people to say that to me without them understanding. I would always say, yeah, my parents are doing about, I'm, I'm guessing they're doing about as badly as I am, but it was really, you know, I also don't think that my extended family, had the same kind of reaction. I, it didn't seem, it seemed to me like life went on as normal for them. You know, there were a couple of weeks where they were able to be a part of the, the, the grief experience, but after the, after a certain point, it felt like they didn't, didn't affect them the same way it affected me. And I found family events to be very, very difficult because those were the most obvious events that he wasn't there for the, those family events. He would be there. And, everyone else's families were intact. I felt very alone and very isolated at a lot of family events. And I found it really hard to talk about what I was going through. That first Thanksgiving after Russell died, I was having a moment. I had to excuse myself from the table to have a little breakdown. And one of my cousins asked me, what's wrong? And I, I, it was hard to realize that I was going to have to probably be the spokesperson for, for my grief. And I've gotten better at that. I've gotten, I've, I've made it my job at family events to bring up Russell, to tell Russell stories, to remind people that he was part of the family. And it was weird in the beginning, but I think I, I at least I've gotten over, go, gotten over the embarrassment of it for myself. Like I'm no longer phased by it when other people in my family get weirded out by it. I just roll with it. You know, that's what it's going to be. It's a them problem if they're uncomfortable. And you were in your early 20s when Russell died and, you know, seeing extended family kind of just move back into their lives. Who did you turn to for support or who was there for you, if anyone? You know, it's an interesting question. I don't uh, I really didn't have a lot of people specifically, uh, but I did have a lot of people that were there. I mean, there, a number of people just didn't get it and drift away. But there were a number of people who didn't get it that at least made the effort to sit with me in the, in the uncomfortableness of it. My parents started going to this self-help support group called the Compassionate Friends, which had a sibling group in, in the New York chapter when they started going. And they kept letting me know that that group existed. Uh, it took me about a, almost, it took me about six, six or seven months before I went to a group and about a year before I started going with regularity. But that kind of peer support with, from people who really were going through the same thing, who really got it was one of the most helpful things. Also comedy, comedy saved my life. You know, comedians 
are very, we, we, we expose our vulnerabilities to an audience. And sometimes the stuff that we want to talk about doesn't always necessarily lend itself to the comedy stage, but we're always trying to figure it out. So having a relationship with a lot of comedians who I met, I met a lot of comedians right after my brother died, who that's the only version of me that they knew. They saw the, you know, they met a, a, a the most broken version of me, I would say. Um, and we're not judgmental and we're able to be open with me about things that they were going through, even if though they were different, you know, some of them had substance abuse issues or mental health issues that were related to, you know, things that were totally out, not, not related to, to loss or grief, but that were hard to talk about with people who, who, who listened, who cared and who were not phased by making inappropriate jokes about it, <laughs> you know? I also remember my my best friend from college. He's not a comedian, but he's very funny and you know, a student of comedy like I was as well. And he came out for the Shiva. For, he was here for that full week. And I remember one day there was just the two of us sitting around and he looked at me and he said, I just have one question. How long before we can start making jokes about this? And I started laughing immediately because I understood exactly what he meant, which was, how how long before we can talk about this the same way, same way we talk about everything else? It's important to have that type of camaraderie and banter with 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 someone who really gets you, who really knows you, who really gets you. And my friend knew my brother. You know, he knew him. You know, they met, they hung out many times. So it was it was helpful to have uh, some people that still had a connection to that part of my life. I wanted to go back for a moment to your experience with the compassionate friends and being part of the sibling peer support group. And, you know, that it took a couple months before you went. And then you said it took a couple more months before you started going regularly. And do you remember anything about the first time you went to the group and kind of what you thought it was going to be like versus what it actually felt like? Yeah. Uh, it, like, first of all, it was like a 180 degree difference <laughs> from what I thought it was going to be versus what it has turned out to be. Uh, I, I initially went to the group because my parents kept mentioning it and I figured, okay, I'm going to go. It won't be helpful. And we'll never have to talk about this ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and the irony is, is that I now run that group and they don't come. I remember that first group being a bit overwhelming. I don't think I spoke at all, but, but I do remember hearing people say things that I was like, okay, well, that sounds familiar. So, all right, maybe I'm not crazy for some of the things I'm thinking, you know, all right, well, that doesn't, all right, I get it. And once I started talking there, I, I, I it's amazing to me how much, like sometimes it's emotional and overwhelming to talk about some of this stuff, but the more I talked about it, the, the more I got used to it and the more normal it became. That whole idea of trying to find ways to talk about this the same way I talk about everything else, kind of that's where the seeds for that were planted. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in reality, because I was able to do exactly that. There was no judgment in that circle. It was a place where I could make a joke and people would laugh or I could cry and people would put their, it was whatever version of me showed up at that group was always accepted. There was nowhere else in my life where I was able to really talk about what it was like to lose my brother without people trying to find a fix or trying to change the topic it was really the first place that I started to find a vocabulary for even how I felt. I don't know if I had a real understanding of what my feelings were, how to put them into words, because it was so foreign. It was so such, a, such an alien experience. I had no idea what that had felt like. 
and I had no, no, no way to talk about it because I had no vocabulary for it. So just finding a place where my, my, my loss was acknowledged and validated was huge. Yeah, it's a big topic of conversation, particularly in our groups for young adults who are like 18 to 40 of like, when do I bring it up? And how do I bring it up? And, you know, with meeting friends and new coworkers and and just environments where not everybody knows that their person has died, and they want to talk about it. And I think sometimes that's the magic of coming to a grief support group, because it's already on the table, you know, you don't have to worry about like, when am I going to bring it up? And how's it, you know, you might still be like, how's it going to go? But it's like, oh, the, the whole reason I'm here is to talk about my grief. And yeah. There's like a bit of, whew, you know, relief in that, not trying to figure out where do I get this into the conversation. For sure. It's hard to find ways for it to be uh, organic and not down a rabbit hole of the abyss, you know, is it, right. you know, and for some reason, when you talk about it with people that are not in the group, you know, when you talk about it with, with civilians, people get focused on the, on how they died rather than how they lived. And that's not a conversation that I want to have, you know, I'm not going to go over the details of his car accident uh, with anybody, really. I don't, that's not a story that I tell about Russell, because that's not a story about his life. And I think in the beginning, it's really hard to recognize that we have the power to dictate how that conversation goes 100% of the time. But it feels so out of control in the beginning that it almost feels like we get slapped in the face with it out of the blue, and we don't know how to control it. We don't give ourselves permission really to confidently be, you know, I, I like to say I being able to make other people really uncomfortable really quickly was not the superpower I envisioned having when I was a child, but it is the power I possess. And I, I've come to terms with that. I try to use it for good. Sometimes I'm a little snarky, <laughs> not going to lie, but I, I think it's important to try to find ways that you can make them teachable moments when, or, 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 or at least, you know, if somebody starts to take the conversation in a direction that I'm not willing to go in. It's, it's really simple and easy to say, listen, it's, that's not, that's not a conversation that I want to have. I'm not, you know, or that's not, I'm not comfortable talking about that. Or thank you for asking um, about, about my brother when I'm com more comfortable, we can talk more about it or whatever. There's a myriad of ways that you can deflect that and still take ownership of how that story unfolds for you. There's really no, there's no wrong time to bring it up because there's really no right time either. I mean, it's going to be weird every time until you get comfortable. That's for, for me, that's how I have felt about it. You know, when I became comfortable talking about it is when I, is when those conversations started to become more comfortable because I, I, I was at ease. And I, I think I, that energy transfers, people understand that I, you know, it puts them at ease to have that conversation when they see that it's not going to be upsetting to you. So speaking of narratives and having conversations that are maybe uncomfortable, but that you have grown to be more comfortable having you, you know, everybody does different things in their grief. And you started a podcast, where's the grief that, you know, started uh, just a little bit after grief out loud did. And I'm curious, like, how, how did you get to that point? How did you wake up one day and be like, you know what I want to do? I want to put myself out on the airwaves and talk all about my grief with other people. <laughs> Well, it's kind of funny how things work out. I, I felt for a, a number of years doing comedy uh, and grieving were uh, I was living uh, I was I was leading a double life in a sense. You know, they were parallel, but they were not really they did not intersect. I, I really didn't have any material in my act about my brother. I had no material in my act about my grief. It felt very surreal. In a way, comedy saved my life because it gave me the opportunity to think about all this stuff 
that was totally unrelated. You know, all this distraction was helpful. And like I said before, talking with other comedians off stage about stuff that I was dealing with allowed them to tell, talk to me about stuff they were dealing with. And there was a, a nice synergy to that, that I think bonds. When, when you talk about heavy topics like that, it really bonds you to people when you open yourself up. So having that part of my life and having the, the compassionate friends group that I was going to, they were, there was so much similarity to the two, to the, to the two experiences, despite them being separate. And uh, the podcast thing was really starting to take off. I started, I was listening to a lot of podcasts. It just felt like the right medium for, for this type of conversation. I, I really felt a need to, to meld the two. I felt like I needed to start talking about what I was dealing with. I didn't like the idea of doing, I, I had written some one man show stuff and, you know, solo, solo show projects that weren't as satisfying as having real conversations. You know, I had started going to the compassionate friends national conference every year. That was a game game changer. Again, you know, we, we you go to a hotel where it's 2000 people and everybody there is part of our said group. It was revelatory to me to be able to have a full immersive experience like that. And the, the, the thing that I always say about those conferences is that we get our, you know, there were a lot of great workshops, but we got our best work done at the bar is the analogy I used, which is an analogy for all the in-between times, the sitting around outside, having a cigarette late night, having drinks, you know, get, getting drunk with other bereaved siblings is where I found myself again. It's where I was able to connect to parts of myself again. And so I felt it was pretty natural to me to start doing, I started talking to other comedians who had experienced similar losses. And I just thought, I wonder if I started a podcast about this, would you be willing to come do this? And I asked a couple of people and they were all, it's funny how you ask a comedian, are you available to do this? Oh yeah. Everyone I know is dead. Let's do it. You know, it's uh, <laughs> the same excitement that they bring to any kind of gig. <laughs> and and so I just felt like it was a natural, it was it really was, was a very organic process by which I developed it and thought about it. And once I got, once I saw there was interest from, from other comedians to talk about it, I thought, wow, this is really something. And I started doing them. I think I did about a dozen episodes before I put any of them out. I was kind of blown away by how much I was getting out of doing a, the, the interviews because gaining different perspectives and hearing all these different stories and being able to talk about grief where mine wasn't the, 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 at the center of it was also really helpful. I, I realized that doing the interviews was a, a means to itself. The, 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 the publication of them, putting them out into the world and letting other people listen to them was all gravy. Like it was enough. I was getting enough out of it just by doing the interviews to keep doing them. Well, you mentioned earlier this idea that when you're talking with people who are grieving versus people who are not grieving, that that can be a very different experience. And then also the idea of talking to comedians and talking to non-comedians can also be a very different experience. And I wonder when those two things come together, like what is it about talking with another comedian about death, about grief, that's different than any other type of conversation you might have with, say, someone like me, who's in the grief world, but I'm not a comedian, or someone who's a comedian. Well, it sounds like from what you said, all comedians are in the grief world. So we'll just leave that part. <laughs> <out of it. laughs> but what what's like, yeah, what's really stands out about that? You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I don't think there is an answer to that, that, uh, that will satisfy everyone. But I do think, you know, comedians are we're, we're social commentators, we're, we're, we're the philosophers, we're, we are in between every other element of entertainment. You know, the, 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 you start out doing comedy and it's hard to make a living doing just comedy. You have to sort of divert, you have to do everything. Uh, 
So we're, we're, we're often doing so much by ourselves to begin with. I, I find grief to be such a individual and isolating experience. You know, we each are going through it on our own, even when we have support and people, what we are experiencing is unique to, to us. Nobody is doing it like us. Even, even, you know, my parents who lost my brother, their, their experience is completely different. You know, sets of siblings who have lost a, uh, a mutual sibling have different experiences. I love comedy so much because the best comedy you don't need to get the laugh to, to feel the connection. Sometimes, you know, the, the, the bigger the topic, the heavier the topic, the bigger the laugh needs to be. But sometimes, you, you know, you can get an applause break just by telling the truth. And I think that when you go through an experience like that of, of loss, of, of really deep loss, the truth is all you have left. You know, you need that. I seek out genuine connection with people. I think it is, there's no substitute for having that type of uh, genuine understanding and respect, you know, losing people is part of the human experience. And it is, you know, we're, 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 none of us gets out alive. We're all, and we all lose people along the way. The fact that society uh, is in particularly in America uh, doesn't really allow for, uh, for us to, to talk about it openly. I think it's sort of a taboo topic to talk about it. So it's, it lends itself pretty well to comedy, I think. You know, I have a joke in my act right now about how, like, I like I, I, I'm doing jokes about mental health because comedy is the only place where you can actually talk about it. <laughs> you can't talk about it with your friends. <laughs> you know, I go to a support group for bereaved siblings. And that's a great sentence that you can use if you ever need to get out of a conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, and, you know, I was going back to what you said earlier of when when Russell first died, it was like landing in a whole new, like on a whole new planet, you know, you're not even sure what this atmosphere is, or what to eat or what to drink, or where it's safe to go or not safe to go. And didn't have words to express what you were feeling, because you weren't even sure what you were feeling. And I think about expression, right? Like artists, the the outcome of their expression is a painting or a drawing. And for comedy, the outcome is is words and your currency is is words and so I think there's something so powerful about comedians and and writers and, and poets and that they they're able to take grief and give it voice put it into words that other people read and even if they didn't know what they were feeling now they know what they were feeling because someone else gave voice to it and I think comedy is just another way of that verbal expression that so many people can go oh Thank you. That's exactly what I was feeling. I didn't know what I was feeling, and I definitely didn't know how to talk about it. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that that's 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 one of the things that comedy really does is it brings people together with collective understanding. Like, oh boy, I thought I was the only one. That's what I think that that at its you know at its best, I think that some of the things that the best comedy you can make the same point without the jokes, but the jokes make the make them go down a little easier. I think so many people are surprised when they come to grief support groups at Dougie Center or with compassionate friends, a little surprised and maybe a little unnerved by how much laughter happens there, that, that those jokes are happening in that environment, too, because it's other people get it and you're not having to be so careful about how we talk about our grief or about our people to like caretake for other people. And then that that comedy just becomes a unifier in a way that I think is hard to replicate in outside uh, situations. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, comedy helps to 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 really blend 
that that that, that genuine need to scream at the universe, uh, uh, but find a way to bring people over to to what you're talking about. I find it sometimes it makes it easier for us to come to terms with whatever the difficulty is. You know, there, there are no answers to a lot of this stuff, but feeling like it's a normal part of our existence for me has been a very helpful really, you know, thing to remind myself of, you know, as hard as this is, this is not, I'm not the first person to lose my brother. We're really only like a hundred years away from a, a time when people were having eight, nine kids and hoped that, three or four of them lived to adulthood. So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, you know, crazy to think that, that we're, we're, we're looking at this stuff now uh, and, you know, finally giving voice to a lot of this stuff that was previously swept under the rug or just deemed, you know, well, that's just part of life. And yeah, it is. And so is being sad about it. So is being upset about it. So is continually yearning for what can never be again. You know, I think, for me, that it's important to to acknowledge both sides of that. You said earlier too that as comedians, you all are you know public commentators, observers, philosophers, and I wonder, given the context of where we are right now in the spring of 2022, and having you know gone through two years of a much more heightened awareness of grief and loss, both loss from death and non-death losses with the pandemic and war and all the things that are happening. And I just wonder what has it been like for you or what have you seen or heard in the, in the comedy realm around this? It's like in a weird way to me, it's like a bigger focus on grief and a not bigger focus on grief. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's been my experience of like, people are like, yeah, we're going to talk about it. No, we're not. Never mind. <laughs> we're done talking about it. Yeah. I, I, it's like uh, we want, people want to talk about it, but not in depth. You know, it's like, Oh, we're going to mention the elephant in the room. And uh, now we're moving on. You know, it's uh, you know, I think that that's for me, that's part of the human experience is looking at that, at, at, at what's happening and trying to find a way to make it less scary. Cause, because ultimately this, the, 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 for me, the, the, uh, the experience of grief and has what it, it's so scary in the beginning. Cause you don't know how to deal with it. You think, Oh my God, I'm going to feel like this forever. Uh, I, it's hard to, I, hard to get out of our own way when, when that happens, I think, you know, being able to take a step back and realize that the, I'm one in a long line of people that this has happened to. And I'm, I, I try to be open to the possibility that tomorrow will suck less and being able to talk to people about it is has been the only be way for me to convince myself that that life will go on at some point. And with it being, you know, almost 20 years since Russell died, what's one thing that you know now about grief that you're like, oh, I really wish I had known this back in my early 20s when my brother first died? Well, I wish I would have bought stock in Zoom. That's for sure. I think. It's funny. People ask that question a lot. And I don't know if there's an answer because if I, I, I don't think I was, I think part of the hardest part about grief is that there are no shortcuts. Like had I known any of the things that I know now, 20 years ago, I would have dismissed it as bullshit. I don't, or I wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been listening or I wouldn't have been able to enact it. I talk about this in my group a lot about how there are a lot of concepts that I know and that I understand on an intellectual level that are really hard to enact on an emotional level, you know, and, and this is like a thing that people say to you all the time. Oh, your brother wouldn't want you feeling this way. Yeah, really? No shit. <laughs> like I chose this, but this is how I feel. 
and I'm going to have to deal with how I feel so that I can try to find a way onto the other side of it. But I'm, I'm going to acknowledge how I feel by, by, by saying, well, you know, I shouldn't, I should, I don't want to feel this way. That's not <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, 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 so I don't think that there was anything that I didn't know 20 years ago that I would have been able to do about it. You know, it wouldn't have sped anything up. Certainly. Um, I'm really lucky that my parents didn't insist that I do things a different way. I'm really lucky that they didn't um, spend all of their time uh, 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 having their own pity party. You know, they were, they were, I, I was still very much uh, at the forefront of their minds, you know, still very interested in what I was doing, still very supportive of what I was doing of my comedy career. They've been in my corner the whole time. You know, there's a big thing where sometimes when a child dies, the parents go out of their way to, create a shrine for that child. And then, then there's nothing that represents anything similar for their children who are left, who are still here. And it's like, you know, hello. Yeah. I, I know people that I've met at TCF at compassionate friends who lost a child and they go, I don't, I didn't even know they had other children. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky that I had that, that I, that I had a lot of those things in place before uh, Russell died, even that, that, that I had that relationship with my parents so I don't know. I don't know uh, if there is anything that would have made a difference. I, everything that I've gone through, I kind of fought against <laughs> initially and has turned like being the, the leader uh, in the sibling group. Like it's definitely 180 degrees from what I thought I was going to be doing. And I'm not a kumbaya guy. Um, I'm not. A, I was never going to be a guy sitting in one of those circles talking about my feelings, you know, that the, the, I remember that first, those first few meetings going to thinking people were there for 20 years. And like, is that going to be me? That scared the crap out of me. I'm like, is that going to be me? I'm going to be, I'm going to be sitting in one of these sad circles 20 years from now. And that's not going to be me. Right. I mean, is this, this is my life now? Jesus. And here it is 20 years later. I'm that's what I'm doing. I'm running that group. And it's weird to think how much, I've made it a cornerstone of my life, you know, consciously I've, I've, I've gone out of my way to do, to do so. And I, I often talk about how, like, it's one of the ways that I managed to keep my relationship with my brother going. It's how I'm, I'm able to talk about it with frequency and with comfortability is because I'm still there. And I'm also hyper aware that it's so important that this group continues to exist because I don't know where I would be without it. And I, I don't go to a lot of meetings because I have to talk about my grief anymore. I go because I get to, talk about a lot of that stuff. And I get to talk about my brother, you know, and I get to help other people, you know, I get to, and I get to, <laughs> I get to workshop some jokes here and there. <laughs> well, Jordan, I'm wondering for our listeners now who, you know, I'll put all this in the show notes, but for somebody who's, you know, driving in their car right now or out for a walk and they just want to go find your podcast or find some of your comedy work, like where would people go to connect with you? Yeah, you can go to wheresthegrief.com. If you are not internet uh, or podcast savvy, but you can also find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. I'm on Stitcher. I'm on, uh, you know, so Android and Apple phones. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at where's the grief. I'm all, I, I just started a YouTube channel as well. Pretty sure you can find it at where's the grief podcast or just my name, Jordan Ferber spelled with an O J O R D O N Ferber. And um, I would be remiss if I also didn't mention my my foundation. My family and I started a foundation in my brother's memory. It's called the Russell Ferber Foundation. We have a, a couple of different beneficiaries of the fund, but our main one is a full two-year scholarship 
in the pastry program at the Culinary Institute of America, where Russell went to school. And we do a big fundraiser for it every summer. It's usually the last Wednesday in June. It's going to be June 29th this year. This year is our 17th annual fundraiser. And you can go to russellferberfoundation.org to find out more about what we do there. And you can follow uh, Russell Ferber Foundation on Instagram at Russell Ferber Foundation. Well, thank you so much, Jordan and, and listeners. As I mentioned, I'll put all that in the show notes. I'll also link to the Compassionate Friends that we've talked so much about, the National Peer Grief Support Program for parents and caregivers who have had children die and also for, for adult siblings um, who have had siblings die. They have about, uh, I'm not sure what the number is right now, but there, there, are, there are hundreds of local chapters around the country and their national website has a chapter locator on it. You could just put your zip code in there and it'll show you what chapters are close by and contact information for the people that run it so you can find out more about how they're running their meetings right now. Yeah, and I think it's a lesser known uh, fact about Compassionate Friends that there are these groups for siblings and what people mostly think parents and caregivers. So I'm really grateful for the work you're doing there. And, and listeners, I'll also link to an episode of Where's the Grief, where Jordan interviewed Brennan Wood, Dougie Center's executive director, about her book, a kid's book about grief. So I'll make sure I'll link to their conversation there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Jordan, thanks for taking time out of your day today to talk with me. And I'm really, uh, I have a lot to think about with all that you shared about comedians and commentary and philosophy uh, about life and just how true that is and, and being the reflectors of, of loss, which is a part of the human experience. So grateful for the way that you've kind of brought those two worlds uh, together. Yeah. Thanks so much. I mean, it's, uh, it's been weird <laughs> to say the least, and uh, really was able to meld those two parts of my life. And it's been it's a, as weird as it's been, it's been very exciting and rewarding to, to put myself into that position. Well, thank you again for the work and for your time today. And listeners out there, just really grateful each and every time that you decide to tune in to an episode of Grief Out Loud or when you share an episode with family or friends. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, which is also our website where you can find all of our past episodes, our downloadable resources like tip sheets and activity sheets and information on where you can find programs similar to Dougie Center where you are currently living. I also want to share some exciting news that Grief Out Loud is supported in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. So we are grateful for their support and grateful for you. So thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.